Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Anthony Malloy. Anthony Malloy was a papal envoy who was responsible for writing up the finer points of the Edict of Restitution. These points made the Emperor very happy indeed. This of course is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 39 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to When Diplomacy Fails, Heatwave Edition. And we are looking, of course, at the Thirty Years' War. Hope you're all doing well and that you're getting on with your vaccines and staying safe. I myself am halfway vaccinated, so that's pretty cool. I should give you a little warning before we start. It's obviously really, really warm at the moment, and because of that I just cannot close the windows or I'll melt. And as a consequence, you'll hear a little bit more background noise. And I only really warn you because it seems like some people today have taken it upon themselves to make as much noise as possible. So if you hear any background noise, I do apologise. We'll do our best to get rid of it. Last time, we concluded the Danish War, and we examined in brief the eventful years of 1628 and 29. We'll return to those events in more detail in later episodes, but before we do that, we do have to turn our attention to the more infamous developments that culminated in the Edict of Restitution in March 1629. This edict rolled back the clock in the Empire, as the Catholic Church was effectively returned to its 1555 position by returning land which had long since been secularised. That edict was a dramatic declaration of what Emperor Ferdinand intended for the Empire and what he saw as the fruits of his victory, but we would be wise not to see the edict as coming from nowhere. Ever since the triumph at White Mountain in November 1620, Ferdinand had been hard at work to redress the religious balance in Bohemia and recast Habsburg rule there as hereditary, concrete and wholly just. Other examples in Upper Austria provide us with a clear picture of the Emperor's intentions. He desired the consolidation of the Habsburg hereditary lands, first under the rule of his dynasty and second under the spiritual domination 
of the Catholic Church. This order is important because while absolutist government and absolute obedience was what Ferdinand insisted upon, his government was not theocratic. The interests of the dynasty came before that of the church, but it was through the empowerment of his dynasty and the expansion of its powers that Ferdinand sought to serve his church and his god. Without any further ado then, let's see how he intended to do precisely that as we examine the regime implemented by the emperor in the defeated lands and look at how these policies led to that fateful edict. It was then, for the first time, that we learned from experience that neither plague nor war nor hostile foreign incursions into our land, neither pillage nor fire, could do so much harm to good people as frequent changes in the value of money. This was the assessment given by a contemporary of Bohemia in 1633, over a decade after the crushing of the Bohemian Revolt and the bending of that country's will by the Habsburgs. The provinces of Silesia, Moravia and Bohemia, which constituted the Kingdom of Bohemia of a bygone age, suffered terribly during the Thirty Years' War. An obvious fact considering it nursed that conflict into being, but it's still a fact that deserves emphasis nonetheless. In the year 1600, with a population just shy of 3 million, Bohemia was the most prosperous part of the Habsburgs' domains. Fifty years later, though, the guts of a million citizens had fled or perished, while the Kingdom of Bohemia was itself completely recast into a new role. No longer would the Kingdom of Bohemia boast proudly independent institutions or a sovereign crown, and it certainly would not be boasting any religious freedoms either. Instead, Bohemia was destined to be merely the appendage of the Austrian Habsburg Empire. This was to be the legacy which Ferdinand II left behind, but it was far from the only contribution that he made. Bohemia was fastened to Vienna, its religious pluralism quashed and its crown made a hereditary Habsburg institution. To achieve these ends, the native Bohemian nobility had been dispossessed and destroyed, and with them went the old culture of Bohemia as well. The power of land became especially important as the coinage was debased, and citizens turned to barter where they could, rather than hold on to the worthless copper coins they were issued. A theme of economic crisis ripped through Europe in the early 17th century, and while one historian has remarked that Bohemia's economic woes were unconnected with those of the rest of Europe, it is remarkable nonetheless that the war exacerbated liquidity problems and inflation all across the continent. An oft-used example was the financial woes of the kings of Spain, who declared bankruptcy several times and endured periodical bouts of financial crisis above all in 1607, 1627 and 1647, when the cumulative effect of minting so many debased copper coins ruined bankers and shattered confidence in Madrid. Ferdinand had played his part in this unfortunate procedure in the interest of quickly selling off Bohemian land. To acquire the sum of 30 million florins, which would be used to pay his debts and demobilise the army, the emperor authorised a scheme whereby mints were permitted to issue millions of coins at a greatly reduced rate of silver content. The immediate result was that the 15 members of this scheme, which included Wallenstein, bought off their land and they became wealthy through their possession of that land. However, and you can probably see where this is going, 
the coins which they had created to gain this land then entered circulation in the country with disastrous consequences. Initially, only those rebels or relatives of rebels fled Bohemia, but the cumulative effects of a ruined nobility and worthless currency compelled tens of thousands to leave in a mass exodus in spite of Vienna's warnings against such a journey. The most fascinating demographic impact of this exodus is seen in neighbouring Saxony, where most Bohemian exiles fled. In 1623, the Czech church in Dresden, so the capital of Saxony, boasted only a handful of people, but by 1630, the Bohemian exiles in Dresden were so great in number that Saxon pamphleteers worked to learn the language of the immigrant so that they could be converted to the Lutheran creed. Ferdinand found that once he had destroyed the wealth and power of the old Bohemian nobility, he was able to succeed where his predecessors had failed in building a loyal Bohemian state. In line with this new regime, Ferdinand introduced special institutions to rule them in his name and based his legitimacy on new constitutions, which were crafted in turn for Austria in 1625, Bohemia in 27, and Moravia in 28. The estates in both Austria and Bohemia had their influence and power greatly reduced, and Ferdinand filled this power vacuum with his own authority. A notable trend is thus apparent when one considers the course of the Thirty Years' War. As the Emperor's forces achieved more triumphs and he gained more power, the Habsburg hereditary lands were brought more under his absolutist thumb. Significantly, We should recall that when creating the Habsburg army, Ferdinand was aided by self-interested servants like Wallenstein, who were more than happy to leverage their personal power in Bohemia to the benefit of the emperor and themselves. Ferdinand's inherent weakness at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War and his relative poverty are explained, as we have learned, by the unruliness of the hereditary lands in years past, the lack of stable financial assets to pay any personal army, and the absence of an organised structure with which to organise one. Thus, Ferdinand depended upon personal mercenaries like Albrecht of Wallenstein or Maximilian of Bavaria, and he paid both individuals with confiscated lands and titles rather than money. It's therefore possible to argue that Ferdinand's very weaknesses pushed him into a corner, because to achieve decisive victory against his enemies, he had to violate the imperial constitution by promising land that wasn't his, and overcoming objections by making use of brute force, which was itself on loan to him. So long as no concerted efforts were made to destroy this strategy, Ferdinand was able to get away with it and endure the mute protests of the Elector of Saxony, who had himself been paid off by the lands of Lusatia in 1620. The key problem with depending on powerful allies, rather than being in possession of that power yourself, was one of conviction. Ferdinand didn't wish merely to defeat his enemies and restore the security and prestige of his dynasty to the hereditary lands. He wanted also to serve as the conduit of the Counter-Reformation. For a time, this desire was met with equal fervour from Maximilian of Bavaria, who had occupied the Upper Palatinate in 1621 and imposed his own version of re-Catholicisation. Catholicism had not been practised in the Upper Palatinate since the 1540s, which provided the two Jesuits that attempted to celebrate Mass with something of a conundrum when no chalice could be found across the entire land. The purge of these lands 
proceeded slowly and carefully, since much of its administration remained in the hands of largely Calvinist officials, who could not be instantly expelled or the region would fall into anarchy. By 1625, with more of a handle on the situation, the Upper Palatinate's administration was purged. In 1626, Calvinist ministers were expelled, and in 1628, Lutherans were given six months to either convert or leave the country. By that point, there was no power that could challenge the Bavarian and Habsburg supremacy in Central Europe, but that did not stop the common people from trying. Upper Austria was a portion of the emperor's lands that had a long history of religious independence and opposition to their overlord, and in 1626, a great and terrible revolt was ignited when the people were pushed too far. It was caused technically by Bavarian actions, since Maximilian of Bavaria occupied Upper Austria in pledge for his debts to the emperor. However, since Upper Austria was a part of the emperor's domains, it meant that Ferdinand had the final say, and from the beginning he wished to extirpate heresy wherever it was found. Upper Austria had possessed a thriving Protestant community for several decades, and its people had even petitioned the emperor for their own letter of majesty in 1612, in reaction to the similar concession to the Bohemians. Furthermore, the Upper Austrian estates had entered into an alliance with the Bohemian rebels, and thus went into open rebellion against Ferdinand. Maximilian had crushed this rebellion, since the emperor had not the means to police or pacify his own ancestral lands, and the Duke of Bavaria left behind 5,000 men to garrison the region. Maximilian of Bavaria was wealthy, but his resources weren't infinite. Rather than pay these soldiers out of his own pocket, he expected the Upper Austrian garrison to wrest its pay from the contributions provided by the local citizens. On top of these contributions, Maximilian was effectively permitted to feed off the tax base of both Upper Austria and the Upper Palatinate. This, the Emperor hoped, would go some way towards paying off the debts that he owed to the Duke of Bavaria. And Maximilian thus levied taxes worth 240,000 thalers annually from each territory. Just as matters appeared to be proceeding smoothly, though, the Emperor insisted that in the case of Upper Austria, he was not content with the pace of re-Catholicisation. While the example of the Upper Palatinate demonstrated that a population could be peacefully converted to the Emperor, the pace of this process was much too slow for his liking. Since Upper Austria was technically still the Emperor's land, Maximilian reluctantly agreed to speed up the conversion process. In October 1624, the expulsion of all Protestant pastors and school teachers was announced, and intolerance was furthered by the establishment of the Reformation Commission in October 1625. In this microcosm of the Habsburg hereditary lands, we can see an indication of what Ferdinand planned for the entire Holy Roman Empire, since one of the missions handed to the Reformation Commission was the recovery of all secularised church lands, effectively turning back the clock in Upper Austria to the period before the 1570s, when Protestantism had first arrived in the region in real force. The different structure of the Lutheran and Calvinist creeds lessened the importance of monasteries, and as the Catholic clergy were gradually edged out, these lands that had once held monasteries were sold to the highest bidder or were occupied by new tenants. This process had taken root all across the empire, and in some cases, entire bishoprics like Magdeburg had been secularised in this way. To secularise a bishopric meant to alienate the land from the Catholic Church, 
and recast the control over the land in terms of the empire's secular land rights rather than what any church fathers wanted to say about it. By 1629, first and sometimes second generation German potentates ruled over land which had once been owned by the Catholic Church. The idea that these figures could be removed and the lands returned. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. To their rightful Catholic owners was guaranteed to make the inhabitants very displeased. And this aside from the fact that the Habsburgs had endured chronic shortages of priests to stock even their new religious order in Bohemia. Did Ferdinand have a plan to fill these new Catholic positions in Upper Austria, let alone the entirety of the empire? Evidently, he did not, nor did he learn his lesson from the uproar caused by the restoration of Catholic church land in Upper Austria. The revolt in that unhappy region boiled over in May 1626, after a ruling insisting that all Protestants had to leave the country and the arbitrary execution of some 17 parishioners who had been chosen by lot was ordered by the emperor to set an example. The message was received loud and clear and the people rose up in revolt just as Maximilian had feared. The rebels found their leader in Stephen Fadinger, a farmer of modest means who captured the anger and frustration of the people Catholics and Protestants alike, who had been aggrieved by a 14-fold increase in taxation in the previous years. In addition, the citizens of Upper Austria were weary of the presence of the Bavarian troops, and many had suffered to see their savings wiped out with the currency crisis of 1621-23, which, as we said earlier, had been exacerbated by the deflated Bohemian coins. Fadinger's forces routed an army of Bavarian soldiers in May, and laid siege to the upper Austrian capital of Linz shortly thereafter. 
The organisation and zeal of the rebels may have caught the Habsburgs by surprise, but luck was on the side of the Emperor. In July, Fadinger was killed in the trenches of the siege, and his cause withered without its leader. Taking advantage of the circumstances, the rebels had attempted to make contact with King Christian IV of Denmark, who was then preparing for his doomed initial offensive against the forces of Count Tilly, but these rebels had limited success. Thereafter, the rebels took to the hills, and Maximilian was forced to request that some 12,000 soldiers be drafted in to root out the guerrillas and put the rebellion down. It was an immensely costly misstep by a harsh administration, and the rebels were able to claim victory in May 1628, when the Upper Palatinate was sold to Maximilian, and the Emperor was absolved of his debts to Bavaria in return. As he had no debts outstanding, there was no need for Maximilian to occupy Upper Austria in lieu of payment, and the region was returned to Habsburg control. As a reflection on the shortage of fully trained priests, the papacy granted permission for Ferdinand to stock the Upper Austrian parishes with regular clergy, some of whom were newly converted from the Lutheran faith. The sheer lack of priests gave the emperor little choice other than to rely on men of dubious piety for now, on the understanding that the situation would be rectified within a generation. We're going to continue talking about the religious balance in the empire and how the emperor reacted to all of it, but before we do I want to let you know of something very interesting in case you were not aware. When Diplomacy Fails has a lovely, friendly Facebook group that you can join absolutely free of charge. And all you have to do to find it is to click on the link in the description below, or if you're scrolling mindlessly through Facebook next time, search When Diplomacy Fails group. Answer the questions that basically are like, hey, what's your favourite episode? And we'll let you in. I've really enjoyed the conversations I've had there in the last little while. It's over a thousand people, which is really cool. And it's a nice space we can talk to each other without Facebook deciding that it's going to hide posts or get rid of images or anything like that. It's not perfect, there's probably better things to do, but for now, so long as Facebook suits everyone the best, that's where we'll be. Stay tuned in the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group, because that's where I put in posts I won't put anywhere else, and it's also where I discuss the latest news about the podcast in a medium unlike anywhere else, really. So, what I'm trying to say is, if you want to talk with like-minded people, if you want to keep up to date with the latest goings-on with the podcast and other things we have planned, When Diplomacy Fails group is where you should go. Looking forward to seeing you there. And now, let's get back to the show. In September 1627, the electors of the empire send representatives to meet at Mühlhausen, as the defeat of Denmark seemed imminent. It was at this meeting that Ferdinand's envoy communicated his master's wish. It was time to discuss the religious state of Germany, and to redress the injustice done to Catholics in the past, who had suffered the loss of their lands. This was, Ferdinand claimed, the great gain and fruit of the war, which he had been mulling over for some time. Perhaps, having learned that native revolts against religious reorganisation could be defeated by the simple application of force, the emperor felt confident to challenge the whole of Germany now that his generalissimo was in the ascendant. In any case, the challenge would be far greater, since it would transpire that the emperor wished to turn back the clock, not to the 1570s as he had done in Upper Austria, but to a generation earlier, when the 1555 Peace of Augsburg 
had been signed. It must be remembered that the Emperor was not acting alone. He was spurred on by the Jesuits and by his confessor, William Lamoramani, but also by the Catholic Party resident at Mühlhausen, who expected some redress for Catholic grievances to come as part of any peace settlement. Indeed, we should bear in mind the virtually unbroken string of Catholic victories since 1620, which had the effect of confirming the Catholic creed as the only true interpretation, and as all Catholic soldiers, as God's anointed. This sharpened the confessional element of the war as the Catholic Habsburgs continued to ride high, creating an important perception, as Peter H. Wilson noted. The Battle of Stadlon was fought on the Feast of Transfiguration in 1623, while a shooting star before the Battle of Luder in 1626 was interpreted as a fiery sword pointing towards the Danish forces who were routed the following day. Such incidents could be fitted into a pattern established by the naval victory over the Ottomans at Lepanto in 1571, and seemed to suggest that God had summoned the faithful to holy war against infidels and heretics. Seen in this light, the preceding years were not merely a triumph for the emperor and his allies, but a triumph also for Catholicism. Surprisingly, perhaps, Ferdinand hesitated in this mission and sought to gauge the opinions of the other Catholic electors in July 1627 before the Mühlhausen meeting assembled that September. The central message from that meeting was that Catholics did not wish to eliminate Protestantism, they only wished to see church property returned to its former owners, a simple request which belied the immensely contentious nature of the task. The Elector of Mines and the newly minted Elector of Bavaria, thank you very much, weighed in on the debate, instructing the Emperor in their turn that monasteries, rather than the more controversial bishoprics, should be targeted, while Maximilian of Bavaria cynically requested that only adherence to the 1530 interpretation of the Augsburg Confession should be allowed to enjoy the privileges of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg. This piece of legislative acrobatics on Maximilian's part was accomplished for the key purpose of excluding all Calvinists from the end settlement. If all Calvinists were excluded, then that meant the dispossessed Calvinist elector Palatine, Frederick, would never be able to recoup his lands and titles from the Bavarian pretender. Yet even with these instructions, the Catholic electors did not foresee the full extent of the emperor's plans. They expected merely new guidelines for the imperial courts to be issued, or for limited restitution of monasteries to take place in lands within the Habsburg sphere of influence. At the Mühlhausen meeting, Ferdinand made his grand intentions plain. He certainly wished to do something special for the Catholic Church, to whose interests he regarded himself as a loyal servant. His envoy at Mühlhausen assured those present that, just as up to now, we never thought to let pass any chance to secure the restitution of church lands, neither do we intend, now or in the future, to have to bear the responsibility before posterity of having neglected or failed to exploit even the least opportunity. And it should be said there were many opportunities to exploit, now that the victory over Denmark was effectively guaranteed. Those present at Mühlhausen granted Ferdinand the responsibility for drafting a suitable settlement. Again, though, Ferdinand seems to have hesitated. 
Perhaps he was preoccupied with other business, like the unsavoury task of transferring Mecklenburg to Wallenstein in February 1628. Either way, by September 1628, a full year after he had been given approval, the emperor received an urgent petition to fulfil his promises to the Catholics of the empire, and this seems to have done the trick. In October 1628, an initial draft of the Edict of Restitution was sent to the electors of Bavaria and Mainz for comment. It is interesting to denote the tone Ferdinand maintained throughout the preamble. The emperor regarded the edict not as an inflammatory move against Protestants, but as a way to settle the uneven pace of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation by returning lands lost to the Catholics, outlawing Calvinism and rolling back the clock to 1555. While Ferdinand drafted the edict in an effort to reach a religious settlement, the conclusion of the Danish war and King Christian IV's known desire for peace appeared to give the emperor a unique opportunity. He was determined not only to avenge himself upon his defeated foes, but, in his mind at least, resolve the military as well as the religious problems which had long plagued Germany. The varied Christian creeds had spread their roots unevenly and haphazardly across the German states, since 1555, and now that he was in the position to do so, the emperor wished to fix the problems which several decades of organic growth, Protestant zeal, and it has to be said, Habsburg weakness, had caused. Ferdinand did not wish to write a new chapter in religious war through the development of the edict. It's reasonable to deduce from the evidence available that the emperor believed he was doing the right thing both for God and for Germany. A limited redressing of the religious balance and an investigation into the past legalities of land confiscated from the Catholic Church would not have been a scandalous mission, and that should be underlined. Some Protestants even expected that religious concerns would be at the forefront of any German settlement, and that within these concerns, land would be foremost among them. Yet, while it is important to consider Ferdinand's perspective, it's equally impossible to ignore the fact that he should have known better. Certainly other figures did, even those that had initially supported their emperor's limited redrawing of the religious map, only to recoil in horror at the full extent of his plans. Ferdinand had also seen for himself the problems which were caused in 1626 in the Upper Austrian case. So, let me put it this way, if he couldn't force his own Austrian subjects to fall in line without having to quash a bloody rebellion, how on earth did he expect the entire Holy Roman Empire to obey similar instructions. Rather than the religious ribbon which would nicely wrap up the military settlement with Denmark, the Edict of Restitution instead resembled petrol poured on a smouldering fire, or gasoline for my American listeners. Whatever moderate expectations that Protestants may have had about the religious adjustments were destroyed by their readings of the final draft. Though Ferdinand had made efforts to consult Protestant figures, the edict which was produced contains a clearly hard-line Jesuit tone, and was in many respects a reiteration of the most uncompromising Catholic interpretation of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg. It seems that in spite of the noble intentions he may have possessed, Ferdinand had allowed himself to be manipulated by the militant Jesuit party in Vienna, not to mention a belief that, having suffered no defeats since the beginning of the war, he was doing God's work and was thus bound to receive his blessing and protection. A sectarian shadow had sought the outbreak of the war since its beginning, and even to this day, it's often stated, without much thought, that the Thirty Years' War, 
was a religious war, but the Edict of Restitution threatened to shroud the Thirty Years' War in confessional conflict and sharpen all religious dilemmas. If the Emperor accepted that the Edict was not what all Germans had been expecting, then he did not show it. Instead, his demands were similar to before. Strict obedience and adherence to these new instructions was the only accepted course. The path to the Edict had not been straightforward, but now that it was in his hands, the Emperor refused at all costs to let it go. Next time, we'll examine how the Empire reacted to the Edict in more detail, and we'll look more closely at its terms and tenets, to assess whether it ever had a chance of being accepted, and exactly how instrumental it was in widening the war. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends. I apologise for the background noise, but it's boiling in here, so I have to have the windows open, and some poor soul has decided to drill for the entire freaking day, but what can you do? Anyway, my name is Zach, this has been episode 39 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.